The future belongs to those who control the culture, and the culture belongs to those who control the conversation. So we are having the conversations you wish you could have at church to build a safe and vibrant community. This is the Oz Table Talk Podcast. You see, throughout the course of history, injustice seems to rise and rise and rise until it reaches some invisible threshold at which point it is pushed back and justice is done. You can see examples of this in history books. You can see examples of this in scripture as you look at the what happened to Israel and the prophets. Just generally speaking, you can see that there is only so much injustice that can be done before the, the scales need balancing. And recently, we have seen that that mechanism of biblical history trigger, I believe. And I believe there are a couple of causal events that are at least most foremost in our mind, even though they are indicative of many such events throughout history. But on the 13th of March, 2020, Breonna Taylor was murdered. On the 25th of May this year, George Floyd was also murdered by police in custody. Now, with that as context... A movement has been spawned from those two events that has made the entire world sit up and take notice. And if we are to be responsible with the platform that we have, we need to speak to that. So that's what today's episode's about. Oh, and one more thing. Just before we get started, we do freely admit our own ignorance on this topic, and we are doing our best to be informed and to be sensitive in the way we communicate. But if there is anything in this episode that does offend you in any way, please know that we do apologize. We are doing our best and we hope that you can still draw some benefit from what we have to say. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Oz Table Talk. And uh, I think I speak for us all when I say this is a pretty heavy episode. In the recent past, there's been so much going on on the world stage. Uh, you know, totally forgetting about uh, coronavirus and all that's going on right now. It's been eclipsed by what's been going on, particularly in America. There was the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. These things have totally disrupted the social fabric of America right now. And the ripples have gone around the world because America is not the only place where these issues are being discussed and, and injustice is being felt. And so we felt like it was our responsibility as we have a platform to have this discussion. So yeah, from you guys' perspective, like why did you feel it was important for us to have, have this talk? Basically, just because we can. I think a lot of people have been lending their voice to this situation that's been going on and using their platforms to communicate solidarity and things like that. And you know, although we can't relate specifically to the experience these people are going through because we're not coloured, you know, we sympathise with them in their pain and we just wanted to use our platform to, to talk about it and just show that there are people who are white who care, you know, don't maybe can't claim to understand, but we care. I think that's one of the things that is uh, intimidating, you know, as you know, we are probably one of the, <laughs> the least ethnically diverse groups of people that you're going to find. But ultimately, we are all human and we can see when injustice is happening to another human, we may not be experiencing it, but we certainly sense the injustice. And as, as, as Christians, right, we can't 
can't look upon injustice and suffering and be indifferent towards it as as i heard one one preacher say yesterday if if we can do that then that qualifies us for being a psychopath right so if we are yeah. going to be if we're going to have integrity in our faith we should be lending our voices to the people who don't have yeah. a voice for themselves absolutely so on on top of uh, on top of that we like i said before we recognize that we you know as Australians, number one, and, and two, as Caucasian males, we don't have a lot of first-hand experience, but we do have a platform that we want allow- to allow people to speak from. And so, we, in preparation for this episode, we reached out to others uh, that are in our audience, people that, that we are connected to as a part of the broader ATT family that do have first-hand experience in these areas. And so, we, we asked them to contribute some of their ideas that we could speak to and also share with you guys. So, you get some perspective that is also from within the within the problem and also external to the issues. So um, we're going to start right now by just sharing some of the thoughts uh, and introductions of the, the people that have contributed to this episode. And uh, they're going to be clarifying at a, at a high level what they perceive racism to be. And uh, we'll be right back. All right. Uh, my name is Benjamin Junior Moa. Uh, I'm a pastor in British Columbia, Canada, just outside of Vancouver at an academy called uh, Fraser Valley Adventist Academy, um, and uh, I am a Canadian born, but from West Africa, Ghana is where my parents are from, and they immigrated here um, in in the in the early '90s. Um, and since then, my family we've been living here, and this is where I was raised, and uh, this is who I've come to be. When I think about my understanding of what racism is, racism is just is way more than just saying something that's rude. It's way more than saying something that makes you uncomfortable or can be disrespectful, but I think of it more as uh, the reality and the systematic pressure. I say systematic, I mean, when you, whenever you step outside into any institution, through schooling, work, um, any sort of uh, organized building, any sort of business, um, the reality of knowing that my skin color affects how people will respond to me, um, how people will react to me, um, and how my skin color can be the reason of uh, my of my lack of uh, success in areas. That's when I see racism. It's, it's not just like being called something or being insulted, but because of my skin color and because of the history that comes with my skin color, um, because of the neglection of understanding who I am, that I am limited wherever I go. My name is Dr. Heather Thompson Day, and I am of African-American descent and uh, Bohemian, and my mother is white. So in my understanding, what is racism? I view racism as a bias against a certain group of people because of their race or the color of their skin, where we make assumptions about what this group is capable of or what they can achieve based on their race. Hi everybody, I'm Eric Jean-Baptiste and I currently reside in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And I am Haitian, Haitian American, uh, but you'd probably call that just African American. Uh, 
black, uh, so many things you we call it here in America. Uh, but basically my parents are from Haiti and they're immigrants. They came in their teenage years and I've been born and raised in America, uh, particularly Massachusetts, but moved here for school into Michigan. But I've been in America all my life. So for me, what racism is, is basically when you take the speech of Dr. Martin Luther King, the I have a dream speech and where he says, I have a dream that uh, little black boys and little black girls will uh, hold hands with white little girls and white little boys and uh, no one is judged on the color of their skin, but the content of the character. You take the opposite of that and uh, you have racism. Thank you so much for being willing to, to share. You just heard firsthand how racism is defined and I'll let you guys speak to it. But one of the things that stood out to me from what they said and also from what I've read recently, and that is racism is not simply somebody saying something rude to an individual or, or one person discriminating against another. There's like two aspects to racism. There is the individual bias where one person is prejudiced against another based on their skin color. That is absolutely accurate. Uh, but I think the the extra layer that's on top of that, which probably makes it all the harder to deal with, is that systemic racism that is at a government or societal cultural level that is above those people on behalf of the majority. So that's probably one of the main things that stood out to me. What do you guys yeah, think? I certainly agree with it. It's probably the harder of the two to, to solve, and it's the reason why there hasn't been a solution for it as of yet, because it's quite a difficult thing to solve, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to even understand at times. But let's face it, it's often below the surface for us and we don't see it. And when things pop up, that's when we see it all the more. And it highlights the importance of listening so that um, we can understand a lot better and we don't need to wait for something um, as terrible as what happened to George Floyd to pop up for us to mm. see and begin to listen and understand. Yeah, I just want to probably clarify there for you, but obviously... It's it's clear as day for those who are being affected by it, and it's it's mm -hmm. poor on society. It's poor on us uh, as white people who aren't affected to allow it to slip into an indifferent category, into the point that mm. we you know we just go around our lives and we just I don't I don't want to believe that people are willingly choosing to ignore it. Yet I know that there's going to be a group of people who understand it's there and simply don't do anything mm. about it. Um, but, you know, for, for the rest of us, we really need to educate ourselves. We need to make ourselves more aware that just because every day we're not being affected by it, that doesn't mean that there's, you know, not people who are because, like what we've heard, every single one of these people have a very clear understanding of what racism is and we're going to hear from them as to, mm. you know, their personal tales as how they're being affected by it. I don't think we can go back to just pretending it doesn't exist now. Uh, I know we're going to talk more about that later in the episode, but the idea that there is a, success, a systemic racism issue in Western culture, you know, and that, that's mainly where we're speaking to, though I'm sure it's, you know, certainly not exclusive to Western culture. But because there is one, we really need to, uh, and especially as Christians, we've got an obligation, we've got a moral obligation, we've got a, you know, a duty as a follower of Christ to ensure that we lend our voice to this, that we 
um, take it upon ourselves to ensure that whatever re-education we need to do to understand it better, we need to do and then allow ourselves to speak into a problem that that we may have contributed to previously mm. in our silence. Yeah. And I think mm. one of the things mm. that you mentioned there, Matt, you, you were saying that this is at least what we're seeing right now. We're in a Western culture context. And so that that's what we're that's where we're seeing it happen. But this isn't a new thing, right? Mm. For millennia, people have been viewing mm, uh, other races as being inferior to them. I mean, we go back, we were chatting the other day, we were talking about even um, the Israelites and the Samaritans because the Samaritans were not racially pure, you know, in mm. quotation marks, compared to the, the Jews. They viewed them as being inferior people and, and inferior before God. So that's not that's not a new thing. The, the thing that we're seeing now, though, is how that has played out because then over time, you see that as Christianity passed, from the uh, the apostles to the first century church, if you like, and second century church, it was they were a Gentile audience and they were European Gentiles, and so the European culture got inextricably melted together with Christianity, and so then what was seen to be European was seen to be Christian, and so uh, over the years that has just bled on through, and and that's what we're still seeing today, where colonization like through that time where you know America was being settled and and as people have gone out as missionaries it has been very much a mixture of that colonization with evangelism where whereas the gospel is you know shouldn't be tied to any specific cultural background where you know and we'll talk more about this later but the the gospel is transcendent of those cultural backgrounds I think it's clear too when we're talking about um, th- this is so, uh, I guess centered around the Black Lives Matter, that the idea of racism has come from colonial Europeans who, when they explored Mm. Africa, treated them as a lesser people because they weren't as technologically Mm. advanced as them and then took them into slavery. And their value has been forever Mm. changed, you know, to the point that we're here in Mm. 2020 and slavery has been abolished for a significant period of time and yet they can still not be seen as people of value like a white person you know what really stood out to me in, I think it was something that Benjamin said, he said, essentially, I can't remember the exact wording he used, but to the effect of whether you choose to talk differently so people don't think you're like as black as you are sort of thing. And so you're trying to change who you are in order to be accepted. I mean, can you imagine what that, what that would be like living your entire life, having to continually edit who you are? just because you want to be perceived... Uh, oh, that was Eric, was it? Uh, so, so wanting to be perceived a certain way. And I think that that in and of itself should ring, ring alarm bells that there's something wrong, the fact that people feel that way. I'd certainly agree. It's, it's mentally damaging to have to um, do that to yourself, and they shouldn't have to. We, there should be that level of understanding there... Um, with the, from the rest of the community for them to be themselves. Well, look, you, you can look at Australians with the very, you know, vernacular that we speak in and this bogan undertone, and the fact is we can still be treated mm. as equals to other white people, and yet, really, it's as soon as there's a different shade of melanin in someone's skin, we devalue them, you know. So, yeah, it, it, the, the lack of, like, an educated tone... Um, is something that's that's scary, but even so more because white people with the same lack of in you know intelligent tone um, are still treated you know with the same equality regardless. Well, um, it's not just your African Americans that have that um, different tone as well. When we look at um, 
the Aboriginal yeah. Australians, they actually have their own vernacular mm. as well. And um, often they'll tone it down around um, other Australians because often we don't know enough about their vernacular. It's um, That's a nice way of putting we it. We should then. actually take... Yeah, we should actually take the time to actually sit down and learn it. Yeah, well, the reality is, is Australia's not too much... Well, it's not any better than America in its systemic racism against coloured people. No. Yeah, it's it's those subtleties I was talking about just at the beginning. We, we need to be more aware of them so that we can educate ourselves, so that we can learn about these sorts of things and educate ourselves so that we can communicate and help our brothers and sisters to feel more comfortable. Yeah, I think that's going to be a key thing we keep coming back to, you know, listening and, mm. and educating yourself because as we listen to people's stories, uh, that's what builds empathy for them, right? So uh, I think it's probably a good time uh, we ask the, the our, our friends who shared for this episode, we ask them to share their stories. So it's probably a good time to insert their stories so we can talk more about that. How has racism impacted my life? I think it's, this is what I talk about a lot when we talk about uh, things like white privilege. And essentially what I think of when I think of white privilege, and I think my favorite definition of white privilege is that it's the ability to walk away, right? So if at any point in the conversation or the documentary or the book or the class period or whatever, you feel uncomfortable or somebody says something that you just don't like, you can just decide to walk away from that conversation. Whereas people of color, and I think especially black people, are never able to walk away from the race conversation. And something that I think we should think about, and that's fascinating, is that this is how majority groups often stay in majority power, and it's that they are often unexamined, right? So in issues and conversations like race, we focus our conversation on the minority group, which is actually unable to control racism. If you want to fix racism, you should really be talking to the majority group, not the minority group, right? But this is what we do in systems of power is we focus all of our attention on the minority group, asking them to give answers for what the majority group is doing. And, and that honestly doesn't even make sense. But so I think one of the ways or the biggest way that this has racism is a part of my life is just the fact that it's always a part of my conversation. Um, I can remember being, you know, just younger in school and, um, you know, you think somebody likes you or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I can remember guys saying, oh, sh she's pretty for a black girl or things like that. Um, and then, of course, these things continue on in, in bigger ways when you're talking about job advancement or, um, you know, people thinking that you're just in that position because they needed a minority token to fill that position. So I think for me, I mean, obviously I, I've also been called the N-word and there's been those big moments where you're like, wow, this person is actually enacting racism towards me. But I think what is really painful is all the little ways that it's just a chronically a part of your conversation. And I'll say this too, when you decide to speak into racism and even just acknowledge it as a person of color, you get, you know, demonized where they're like, oh, this is all like, here she goes again, talking about race. And it might be the first time I've ever talked about it, but because I'm a person of color, that is just always a part of my narrative and always a part of my conversation. And so people think you talk about it even more 
than you actually do if you say one thing about it. I can be uh, seen as someone scary or like I can literally be called the police. The police can be called on me just because of who, my skin color without anyone asking me anything. Um, I can walk into a store. I'm kind of I'm discussing how it's impacting my life. You know, like walking into stores instantly um, you're being followed because a suspicion of you stealing something. Um, people walk in and they make these comments about about who you are, where you're from, and they always want to just make sly comments because that's been accepted for too long. Um, it's impacted my life, I guess, in the sense of like, ha having to try and find value in what I am. Man, like a big thing, I think like a lot of people do with uh, when you're when you're when you're black is that like they try to measure your blackness from the outside. So white people uh, that you meet, they measure your blackness, and so if you're like a nice black person. Um, who speaks a certain way, they will, like, I guess, commend you for it. And then they can say that you're not that black. And so it can, I, it can, it can kind of affect your identity because it's not that it just, because the way you were shown raised or maybe the things that you've watched or the things that your mom is, your parents have let you watch determines how you talk. And so if you don't talk like the people on TV, they're like, Oh, you're not that black. They can say that type of stuff. And then it starts affecting your identity and starts making you worry. Like, what, what am I lacking in who I am and my identity? Is there something wrong with that? Whereas that you can just be a white person and no one's going to see it. You're not that white or you're white or you're not, you're not white enough. Um, and it's this weird thing. And so that's how it's affected me um, in my life. And like, I think about like my experience in high school. Like I went to a pretty Caucasian high school um, in the suburbs and all the people there, majority of people didn't look like me. Um, and I just remember, you know, like them really supportive in every thing. Me and my friends who were also black did athletically, but then outside of it, they didn't want us anywhere. Like times where when we I like say on weekends and we want to go to a gathering, they'd really say none of the black kids don't invite the black kids. They'd say stuff like that. Um, they would call us names in the hallway. They pretty much found another way to say the N word. Uh, but in a different way and the teachers wouldn't say anything whenever we were called that um it was just constant stuff like that in our life um and, and it's not and it's not hasn't disappeared that's what's rough like even now as a pastor you know i can go to a place and i'm walking somewhere and i can't meeting you know or uh it's like pretty much the same uh thing like i can be walking somewhere and people just make comments out of nowhere like someone I was walking behind uh, one of my members and somebody told me that, um, oh, watch out, there's like someone behind you that's gonna that's gonna rob you because I'm a black guy. And they thought that was funny. Um, and that's the type of stuff that people constantly make. And uh, that's just a, a few of the things that always, that are always happening. And, it, and it's weird because you build uh, this suppression, like where things happen and you kind of put it in like the, in the back burner because you're like, one, no one's gonna help me about it. Two, um, people aren't gonna stand up for me about it. And three, like, this is just how it always is. Whatever we do to have fun or to live, uh, or for me, for ministry, you always have in the back of your mind, am I being judged solely on the content of my character? Or am I being prejudged because of my 
the color of my skin or are people reacting because of the color of my skin uh, are people walking on eggshells around me because I'm black or are people afraid of me because I'm black or um, and for me it affects me as well and the fact that should I react angrily as I want to or show my frustration or um, do should I code switch as we call it like talking in um, you know certain kind of vernacular or uh, tongue or kind of the way you would speak so that people don't think you're from the streets or uneducated or something like that uh, that's basically what racism is to me it's it's the making people feel especially uh people of color the people who have been um negatively affected by it uh unable to breathe easy if i could say um for me personally it's affected my life in many ways i i would just because i do so much so many things in ministry it's it's just amazing how uh, I find it a lot in ministry, actually. In uh, I, I remember going to, invited to preach at a church when I was actually very young. And uh, the person who invited me said, oh, well, this is a primarily Caucasian church, so um, you have to not preach too exor exorbitantly, not too... Uh, don't don't shout i think was what he said to me uh because i my style is not i would i didn't even see it as oh that's a a black style of how i preach it's just i get excited with the word and i let the holy spirit use me but um that's that's probably an example of how i felt with it um there's many other negative stories i could tell but uh, that's probably one of them. Before I introduce the next contributor, I thought it would be timely for me to insert a little prologue here because up until now, the people who have been speaking have been people that are ostensibly from North America and even though there are multiple cultures that are represented in the background, uh, this is next one is actually from Australia. And the reason that I wanted to include this is because I wanted to highlight the broader picture of racism because countries outside of uh, the US who have colonial heritage or colonial past also have a lot of similar issues, not identical, but similar. And because we are Australian, I thought it would be appropriate for us to include an Australian perspective as well. And so I'm going to hand over to Jackie and she's going to give a little bit of background on her family. I'm from the Manujara tribe. My people are the desert people of the Gibson Desert of Western Australia. My skin name is Burungu, which is from my mother's side. My tribe is known as the last of the nomads. They looked after and cared huge parts of that country for many years. Their first contact with white people wasn't until the mid 1960s and 1970s, which is quite incredible really when you think about the first settlers coming into Australia, explorers coming in the 1700s, but even though my family didn't have that contact until 
the 1960s and 70s, there was still incredible impact on my tribe. We were already existing societies. We had our laws, we had our culture and traditions, our stories, things already into place where we were passing on to our children. And having that white impact broke down all of the things that we had already had in place and had incredible disastrous effects. My family lived off the desert for many, many years. My grandfather was a traditional man who had three wives and of them he had 16 children. And when they came off country to come and live in the town, they really saw the impact of this Western world and what it was doing to their children. My mum became alcohol dependent, along with a lot of my other aunties and uncles. And soon it was so bad for my mum that she was unable to look after us. And as a result, my brother, sister and I were put into foster care. But not before being affected by living in a home with alcohol, there was domestic violence. And as a result, we all had this childhood trauma. Our mother died when I was 19 years old because of alcohol addiction. And this was a huge shock for us. My brother and sister and I had been in foster care, but we were still very, very close to our mother. And after losing her and going through the grief, we started to unleash the pain that we had suppressed when we were in foster care. And there was this childhood trauma that came through as part of our grief. And this took a long time to work through, to be able to heal from. Unfortunately for me and my sister, our brother was not able to find the healing and help that he needed. He, he could no longer live with this childhood trauma and the loss of our mother. That last year in June, our brother committed suicide. And this is yet another pain that my sister and I are left with working through. We have no parents, we have no brother, and we're losing our elders, our aunties and uncles, because of the impact of the Western world. I'm very lucky to be able to have links and connection back to country so that I'm able to take my children back on a yearly basis throughout the year so that I could have them know their stories and their history and their connection to their family and their country. But I live in modern Australia, have a job and a home and as an Aboriginal person living in today, just because I live in the city 
uh, with my job and my busy life doesn't mean that I don't experience racism. And I do, and I live with this every day. It could be from something small um, like being followed by security in the shops. It could be from comments that have actually been said to my face. And this is really hard, I guess, in particular when this stuff is happening in front of my children. They are young, they don't understand, and they, they watch as they see people treat their mother a particular way. They question, why am I being ignored and not being served in a shopping centre? They question why we've been followed and why my bag needs to be searched. And I think for me, that is one of the hardest things when dealing with this in my life is having my children see this and experience this um, with their mother because of the colour of my skin. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people make up 3% of the population, but in fact make up 38% in Australian prisons. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. 70% of young people imprisoned in Western Australia's juvenile detention systems are Aboriginal children. We have the highest rates of suicide in this country, the highest rates of domestic violence, women in prison. And this has been because of our colonial history. This resulted in the intergenerational disadvantage and trauma We are 10 times more likely to have our children taken into care, 2.1 times more likely to have poor health, 1.3 times more likely to experience mental health, and experiencing 30% more unemployment. And our men are living 13.5 years less than the average Australian. So this continued systematic racism and discrimination that is happening to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is, does lead to things where we are three times more likely to be picked up for speeding or 26 times more likely to be detained. 64% of women that are imprisoned that are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander is because of unpaid fines. Hi, my name is Eva and I want to share how racism has impacted me, apart from all the racist comments that I've received. Um, I remember when I was at uni, people didn't want to do group projects with me. And also I remember that in a tutorial people were ignoring me on purpose. They wouldn't even look at me even though I was trying to um, engage in a conversation to add to the conversation. And I think that has impacted me even though it was only in the past. And nowadays I, I don't see racism all that much and experience that. Um, but it has impacted me. Um, in a way that I feel less confident and more defensive, I guess. Like I almost 
always expect people to be rude to me. Um, and I, I think that's, that's not very good. So now you've heard some of those stories. Uh, I, I don't know how you guys feel when, when you heard them, but for me, I, I was so impressed by the diversity of experience, but also the unifying themes that were in there. Because when, whenever you hear people's stories, it really, it really brings them to life as an individual. And I, and I just want to thank you all for being so vulnerable, being willing to share that, because sharing, especially pain from your past, is um, yeah, it takes a lot of courage to do that. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Yeah, something I was noticing when people were defining what racism is from you know their perspective as colored individuals was that you know we often think of racism as the blaringly obvious but um the way that they were describing it was this very insidious thing that you know more often than not what hurts are the things that are unsaid uh not necessarily those you know really racist comments though i'm sure they hurt as well i'm not saying they don't but it's the, it's all the stuff that you know it gets unnoticed and so they have to deal with it on their own um, you know, because I can think of some examples growing up where, you know, there was some pretty blatantly obvious racism and, um, you know, the people have have people that get on their side, you know, white people that, that stand up for them, you know, and those white people are the minority amongst all the other white people, of course, um, but they're standing up for them. But the problem is they're only standing up for them in those moments where it's really obvious Whereas what these guys have been sharing with their experience is that, you know, quite often it's the things that we as white people just don't even notice that we do, that others do. And so we're not going to be there, you know, to to stand up for our, our coloured friends um, if we don't see what's going on. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's crucial that we recognise that it's a blind spot for us. And so going forward, you know, the only way that we're going to be able to uh, actually, you know, move past that past that blind spot is what Ben was saying earlier, and that is that we start listening, um, and, and not just listening, you know, uh, passively, but actively. You know, actually, be, you start the conversations with your friends or people that you know who are of, you know, a different race than yourself, someone who's maybe a bit marginalised, um, and you know, just hear their story, hear their perspective, so that you know, you know, how maybe you're contributing to the problem. Um, or how maybe you can support them when you wouldn't normally see it. Hmm. Yeah. I think we, when we see people that are... Uh, well, there are certain... I mean, there's obviously a lot of people out there that are pushing back against this narrative of Black Lives Matter. You know, the, the people that will come out and say, oh, no, all lives matter, and they're, they're pushing that slogan. And, you know... By saying Black Lives Matter, nobody is saying therefore no other life matters. No, nobody is saying that, right? So it, it's it's part of this this false narrative that's out there. But what I find interesting is the people that are on the other side of the fence that are pushing back against this this new wave of of push for social justice. The people that are pushing back against it, they would point just like you what you were talking about there, Dave. Those little things. They would point at those little things and say, "What really? Like you know, this is all about." That you know, that's that's so minor, it's insignificant. But one of the things that that stood out in Eva's uh, story when she was sharing is how those little things 
go together to destroy her confidence. And if you destroy somebody's confidence when they're a young person, that's going to that's going to have a dramatic and detrimental impact on who they are as an adult. And so we, we need to we need to realize that the little things are the big things mm. as well. Yeah, I think Ben was also speaking to that. Um in in what he was saying when he was sharing um where he was talking about his identity being affected by how black white people seen him um and that that's crazy you know like between him his story and eva's um this idea that effectively we hold their identity their self-value in our hands and we don't realize it so we don't not of course giving it any sensible respect or or thought and we just throw words around, we throw these mm. statements around without any care and thought yep. or, or understanding of what they're doing to an entire race. Um, and, and this is how, yep. you know, sometimes we end up as silent contributors to this issue. Uh, and, and then probably one of the most disgusting things that... And I mean, I, I felt disgusted hearing every one of those stories because um, I tried to put myself in those shoes. You know, how would I feel if I was that person? How would I feel if I was that person? Yeah, you know, and, and hearing and we've got two pastors in in that in that range that we were talking to, and they're both saying that even inside a Christian church they experience racism from, you know, their Caucasian um, membership. Like I mean, if if there was one place that should have been safe from s- such a blight on humanity, it should have been a church. And that, that someone would think that it's, you know, humorous, maybe, to make the joke about a black person being behind someone and, well, watch out, they're going to rob you, is the entire, like, it's just like a poster boy of this systemic racism issue that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, you would never, ever say that about a white person. You know, you, you wouldn't even, like, think it could, but we've got this, you know, socially built up idea that people of colour are more you know, more inclined to crime, that they're going to, you know, sneak out of shadows and, and jump on you when you're not looking and take your money. I mean, mm-hmm. what the... Oh, it's it's just dumb. It is so dumb. And the people who can't get out of their own head and their own self-importance to see how much of an issue this is, not just for, like, for that person as an individual, but for, you know, the entire group that they are representative of... Yeah. I mean, come on! How how do you call yourself a Christian? Mm-hmm. I re- I remember my first as a kid, probably my first understanding of racism. The first time I actually saw it firsthand and went, "Oh, so that's what that is." I, I remember I was a kid and uh, I we had some people staying with us. It was I, I can't remember what even the event was. I don't know. It was Christmas or I don't know whatever. But there were we often had lots of people staying with us. And there was two two different families that didn't know each other, but were the same nationality, but were different, uh, you know, different colours, right? And so they uh, immediately you could see the the tension between them because the ones that were Caucasian were obviously setting themselves as being superior to the ones who weren't. And uh, I remember. Uh, my my parents kicking them out of the house. <laughs> I, I remember that happening. And so at the time, that was really confusing to me. I'm like, oh, I don't understand. Why don't they like them? You know, but... Um, and, you know, in hindsight, I'm, I'm really grateful to my parents for setting that example because that said to me, you know, that is not acceptable under any circumstances, you know. But the thing is, 
how often do people actually take action like that? You know, a lot of people just let it ride and, you know, although that's, that's, you know, that's their business or whatever. But if we take action when we see it, when we actually have the capacity to do so, then, yeah, then that's where we can affect real change. The other thing that I wanted to speak to that you were uh, speaking about as well, Matt, is that we have a tendency to, we flatten people's, people's nationality, right? You know, we, we see someone and we say they're black, therefore they are xyz fill in the blank that means they are this 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 and this whereas you would never do that to a white person you know you don't look at someone i don't look at you ben and say oh you know he's he's white so you know therefore he must be like this and i don't walk around conscious of being white but uh, people who you know, the, you know people of color have to walk around or not have to but they they're conditioned that's what the society that we live in the systemic issues that we're talking about right now they have to walk around conscious of their own color and how others perceive them as a result of that color i am fairly confident that everyone that is going to see me they may judge me for who i am and that's okay but it's not okay for people to judge you based on uh, your 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 color you know you want people to judge you based you know purely on your character and as a as a white person, I feel like I have that. People judge me based on my character, but that's not that's not a privilege that's afforded to everybody. And that that's what I think uh, is you know part of that white privilege that was mentioned yeah. in in the story as well. You know that idea that we can walk away from uncomfortable, you know, conversations about this, but you know because this is you know such a um, personal issue, not just to the individual. In, in you know the black individual but to the black race you know they can't walk away from it because they haven't been until they can you know have the their value restored mm. to them they can't move on yeah. because they're trying to we overcome make... the hurdle that's been put in front of them i was, I was thinking about the um the differences um i, I listened to neil degrasse tyson's um mm. a little bit of his story in the lead up to this and um he 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 was leaving a store, right? He he paid for the goods and everything, and there was this white guy. He was obviously waiting for him, and he ran out the um, and you know how they got the little the little gates that pick up and set the alarm off. He's waiting for um, he's waiting for Neil to walk through the um, through there before he ran off and stole all his items. And of course, Neil was the one who got um, picked up by the security guards just because of that assumption, right? Just because of that assumption. And that white guy knew enough about the system to exploit it. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, the these systemic issues that that are coming up. That I don't think they were, well, at least, I think the majority of people that are benefiting from the system don't know they're benefiting from the system, right? It's just the case of that the system was set up mm. uh, by by a Caucasian race and so because it was set up by them it's set up to benefit them because that's who it was tailored for and the thing is that system has never been revised which is the the challenge that we're at now that's why there are so many of these systemic issues you know the there's the there's redlining you know the the flawed education system which are creating negative feedback Mm. loops and at least in my understanding it's it's these negative feedback loops that are in our societies that perpetuate the problem make it so much harder to actually address it at that at that higher level yeah yeah that was actually one of the things i came across with um with my research for this um i was listening to warren mundine he's an aboriginal politician here in australia and he mentioned that um the importance of education for um 
for for the Aboriginal people. And um, I also did a bit of research into the American system. And redlining plays an important part in the systemic problem of their education system. Poor, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware that how their um, how their schools are funded is by the land tax. So a poorer community has a poorer school, and mm. I found that quite appalling. I mean, if you if you look at the statistics, a poor community school is can be funded only it might be fifty percent of a, a wealthy area. And it's most likely people of colour in that community. And because of that, they don't get the same education and therefore the same opportunities as those from the wealthier area. And mm. it's just... It continues to create the um, the problem generation after generation. Mm. Even, uh, just like uh, also Kelly was uh, talking about her her family they didn't they weren't you know if you want to use the term westernized or, or whatever they didn't come into what we would consider um, Australian um, you know city life until the 70s you know that's a that is very 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 recent mm. in in the scheme of history and virtually you know in a in a generation they had extreme social problems in the, in their family as a as a result of you know i guess you could say cult, culture shock right coming into a, a system that's not designed for them and them you know not having any prior experience with it or being um mentored into the system or how it, you know or supported in the system you know but it's a system mm. it's a system designed to entrap them too you know just cuz slavery was abolished doesn't mean that the white man didn't find another way to to entrap people. You know, you look at how drugs and alcohol were introduced into these communities. You know, sometimes, like originally, it was introduced instead of money as payment, and so they would work and then just be fed this, and then they formed addictions and issues. And once they had them under these addiction cycles, pretty much had them back in chains again. So you know, it's not just that the the system didn't have them in mind when it was first created, but there were people who mm. created mm. the system to enslave and entrap them. And yeah. all, although there's been a big changes in the, I know in the systems here in Australia, I mean, we, we actually have a, um, a minister for um, Indigenous Affairs, there's the Closing the Gap program and everything else, but there's still that, there's still quite a lot of problems there, and in particular, it's, it's the Aboriginal people not feeling safe culturally safe coming into um hospitals and our institutions um there's distrust there hey yeah and you can't blame them for that with there's there's mm -hmm. decades of intergenerational trauma there and even now we still don't fully understand just the ramifications of it one of the things they've actually implemented for um new nurses is one of the courses they actually do is um learning about how to integrate culture into care and with a particular focus on Aboriginals. But, yeah, it's just... There's there's still so much further to go. We've we've come a long way since the 70s. I mean, you were mentioning the, um, the 1970s. 1972, we Australian schools could actually reject Aboriginals from attendance. And we've come a long way from there, but we've got at least just as far as to go still. Yeah, and I think one of the things that... Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what the uh, what the goal is, and and perhaps this is not even a question for us to answer. But do you guys think that the goal should be 
supporting these people to do to live and to do what they want but how do we get to that point of integration where we're actually collaborating with each other and treating each other as equals because i don't think the goal for anybody and like even speaking from a from a christian perspective i don't think the goal should be to throw out race altogether and culture i should probably a better way to say it throw Mm. out culture altogether because that is flattening us all into this one homogenized lump and that's not the way that i think god designed us to be he designed us to have differences personally i I believe that there are redeemable elements in all cultures Mm. there are also elements in all cultures that need to be jettisoned and so I, i say that as a caucasian aussie and in my culture i mean you guys can all probably speak to this as well but the norm is a alcohol it's it's a drinking, swearing culture, right? That's normal for Australian, Caucasian men. That's how they do life, or at least a lot of them do. And so that's an example of something that we would jettison from our uh, our lives because it doesn't harmonize with our, uh, our identity in Christ. Mm. And I think it's the same in a lot of... Uh, or at least it should be the same in all cultures, that there are elements that are... Uh, positive, like you know, some uh, some cultures have a really high perspective on, or high Im- place a high importance on on family. That's something that as Christians we can absolutely resonate with and, and encourage, and and that is something that other cultures could then learn from because that is that something that that culture does very well. But I don't think any culture can be above our Christian experience that needs to be subservient to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, I just want to add uh, with that answer that you were saying. Um, as in, like, what's the end goal? Well, you know, the the end goal, especially around this, you know, um, large social wave that's gathering momentum and support, is the idea that you know, coloured people will be just treated the same. You know, like as basic as that sounds, and they're being met with, you know, like, mm. you know, resistance against that human right that they are going to be mm. treated mm. the same. That black lives will matter. Yes, there's you know there's big questions, um, Luke, that you're you're alluding to, like you know as to a utopian future and how do our cultures intersect and integrate with each other and things like that, and that's awesome. But I mean, primarily right now, it's mm. ensuring that these people without a voice are heard, and then that we look to enact meaningful change in a in a legislative process, in a cultural process that they are not demeaned, that they, uh, they are given equal value, equal voice. Hmm. I'm really glad that you take us back there to, to first steps. And that was one of the questions we also asked the uh, the people that, um, that have contributed to our episode. We asked them what they would love to see as first major steps towards resolution on, on, these, on these issues. And so um, let's hear from them again. What is the first major step toward a solution you would love to see? Man, the first thing, I think the most important thing is just listening. And that's what I say all the time to my students. Listening is power. Leaders listen. It is probably, I think, fundamentally the most important thing in communication is that we've taken time to listen to each other because how can I ever know what I'm supposed to say if I haven't first listened to you? So I think the first thing that I would want to see towards a solution is that we listen to one another and we say, I heard your experience and can you tell me more about that? Instead of being threatened by people's experiences or or thinking that it somehow demeans our own experience of reality, why can't we just listen to one another and affirm each other in our experiences and learn and grow together? So that would be my hope. 
I mean, what's the first major step that I wish that, that uh, what is the first major step towards a solution that I would love to see? Um, well, I think the first step that I want to see is people being educated, people educating themselves, people wanting to have uh, that desire to want to know more. And I would love to see people want to drop their own perspective and narrative to, so that they are willing to grow. I think the church can have a huge um, role in that because I think if the church, we discuss what love is, we discuss God's love, Jesus's love, and I think we need to go and reanalyze and reconstruct what love means and meaning that like if we know what love looks like, we know what love doesn't look like and that we can call out when things happen like that. Like we need to have a church, I think that like instills in rules that like we don't tolerate racism. Like we need to have church boards that also stand for that. Like as a church board, we don't tolerate racism. And I think we need to have education in our church, in our Sabbath school, in our art, in what we use for our guide and PowerPoint, um, in our art across the church, pictures of Jesus, etc. And so the first step would be, I think, instilling education in our schools, talking about Black history, about First Nations history, talking about the oppressed people that are that are in your community at every school. I think that should be part of um, a church's motto. When we talk about mission statement, like, I don't know, growing up, we'd have these moments where it talks about the mission story, and we discuss it and hear about all these people who are overseas that are like victims. I guess it, it makes them seem lower, you know, but maybe if we just talked about um, the people who are oppressed here and gave people to talk about it who are in your area, in your community, who was being oppressed there so that we can learn and educate ourselves to be a service, to bring restoration in the area that's in our community. Thank you so much, Oz Table Talk, for uh, letting me share. Um, uh, I'm just really blessed to have this opportunity to share about my life, and I hope what I've been saying has made sense. Um, thank you for letting me just pour out a little bit about this topic. God bless. Uh, the first major step toward a solution that I would love to see is... And I think I'm seeing it is uh, black people and uh, African Americans, people of color, just standing up and refusing to quiet, and also um, people of privilege to just listen, just listen, just listen, just educate the, yourself, and understand that you're not going to know how it feels because if it's it's not possible for you to whatever how old you are 15 20 35 to go back and get that feeling of every single day feeling inadequate or every single day feeling like you're being prejudged you're not going to get that all you can do is listen have multiple conversations with all kinds of people of all different backgrounds appreciate their culture and continue to learn so that you feel that compassion and that care for people who look like me. So when we complain about something, you don't just say, oh no, calm down, or oh no, um, you're reacting wrong. Y you will feel that pain with us. And that's, that's something I wanna see. The things that I've experienced in my life, from my mother's trauma, from my loss of my brother, from our life um, through foster care, 
is the things that you read in statistics about Aboriginal people. And for me, a solution around what we can do in this country is addressing racism, truth-telling, to understand our shared history and combat racism in every school, workplace and household, and not just during Reconciliation Week, but all year round. We need justice reinvestment, funding going into early intervention, prevention and diversion, rather than locking people up in an endless cycle that fails to rehabilitate, and really addressing the root causes of offending, like poverty, rather than band-aid reactions. So what can people do? We can ask you, as an Aboriginal person, I can ask you as a, as a person living in Australia to research, to reflect, share learnings, listen to podcasts, read books, use Google to find the books and the movies to watch. Consider how you can address racism and create true justice in your community, support shelters in your community, ask for Aboriginal history and school curriculums, amplify Aboriginal voices, join campaigns, speak to your local MPs. And I guess mostly the, the important thing that I want to say is in supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, you're the First Nations of this country. Don't just support us now because it's trending. We need the commitment for a lifetime so that we can see these positive changes. Well, I think the for a, a problem that is as wide-reaching and multifaceted as this one is, I don't think there is going to be a single clear answer that if we just do this one thing, it'll fix everything. But I, based on everything that uh, our contributors said, one of the things that really stood out to me was the need to listen to each other. I think that is that is a great a great first step. And I mean, there's other things, but what, what do you guys think? What was probably some of the main things that stood out to you? There was two things that settled it for me. What you said was just listening um, to their stories, but the other thing was educating on their history and um, just everything that's that's happening. And if I can just bring this into, uh, mm. I mean, it, it, this all sounds good and easy for people to agree with, but just to put a real application to that. We've seen with these Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on in the US, we've seen the rioting that's been associated with it and the looting that's been associated with it. And so that has led a lot of people to discredit the entire movement and say, well, you know, look at what they're doing. You know, how, how does that make sense? Whereas if we do exactly what, what Ben and Matt, what you were both just talking about, if we learn about the history and we ask questions, and, and this is a basic good communication practice, that we should assume the best and question. So if, if we ask questions, assuming the best of the people rather than assuming a negative uh, reasoning, we might uncover things that we didn't expect. And, you know, just as an example, obviously I'm not defending the idea of, you know, well, you know, looting stores is good for the, you know, good for the movement. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is if you look at what these people have been dealing with and living with on a day-to-day basis for their entire lives and what their parents dealt with and what their grandparents dealt with and what their great-grandparents dealt with, 
when you see a system that has been broken for as long as it has been, that builds up a lot of animosity. That builds up a lot of pain. That builds up a lot of rage. That builds up a lot of these negative emotions. And what with what has recently happened, particularly with, with George Floyd, that has let, you know hit the pressure release on that, which has caused all these things. You know, are those things individually not? A good thing, of course. But if we come to the conversation asking, well, why did that happen? What was it in their experience that put them in that position? Let's assume that they are reasonable people. Let's assume that they do want what's best for society. Let's assume they do want what's best for their kids and try to understand it from their perspective. I think we'll come away with a completely different outlook on their reasoning for what has happened other, you know, compared to if we just come at it and say, oh, well, you know, look, look at that. That's that's terrible. You know, why should we listen to them? Hey, everyone, just a quick editor's note here. There was a bit of technical difficulty around this part of the conversation, which meant we lost Matt's mic, which unfortunately makes this section of the conversation a little difficult to understand. So I have cut out the worst of it, and it's going to transition directly into Ben's comment. He's referring back to what Matt is talking about, which is essentially about taking action. So hopefully that makes sense as we progress into the remainder of the discussion. And if you're feeling like uh, writing a little bit, um, like Kelly mentioned, um, just writing up a letter to your um, your political leaders, because they don't actually get that many letters, so they actually take notice when they receive them. So if you write a, um, write a letter to your um, political leaders in Australia, it's our MPs, they'll, they will notice. I think just a couple of things that I... Just as you were chatting, and also as we were listening to the uh, input from uh, from the our contributors, a few of the things that really stood out to me is that a lot of people tend to equate anything that is politicized uh, with uh, something that a Christian should not be a part of. Right, so these protests you know, uh, a lot of people consider them to be political in nature, and so a lot of Christians are stepping away from them. But at the same time, a lot of Christians are stepping toward them. And I think it's really important for us to ask ourselves some hard questions if we are stepping away from these kind of things, because we're not talking about um, partisanship. We're not saying whether we support the left or the right. We're not saying that what we're saying is we su- we support the... Uh, change, positive change, don't don't care who's in power, but we support positive change to stop oppression in our societies. And if you look at, and this is something that I feel really strongly about, because if you look at, particularly in the Old Testament, look at the, look at the minor prophets, look at the prophets in general. Yes, they had a role in foretelling the future, but the great majority of what you read is them speaking out about injustice that was happening in their societies. They were being truth-tellers, like Kelly mentioned, she used the term truth-tellers. That was the function of Old Testament prophets. And so, if we are God's people at this end time, we have a prophetic message to give, and as prophets, we should, and I don't mean as prophets in the sense of being a prophet, but we have this, this uh, we have the truth that God has given us, and He has given us the responsibility to disseminate that truth to others. And if we're going to do that in a way that is is um, that has integrity with the with scripture? It requires us to be against things that bring oppression and persecution to, to other people that can't get themselves out of those positions. So, therefore, I think it's entirely in harmony with our position as modern day Christians 
to be marching in those protests, to be making our voices heard, to be sending those letters, to be doing these things. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm preaching now, but you get the idea, right? <laughs> uh, yep. um, mm. A couple of things that stood out to me through this conversation um, that we can probably act on ourselves. I think it was pretty clear that um, inactivity is, is really you know, not an option. That is that is a form of racism, if you like, because of the system mm. that we live in. Um, so, as as white people uh, living in our privilege, if we don't do anything about it, uh, we are actually empowering other white people to continue to abu- abuse their power. So, you know, like you guys have been saying, we need to do something. We can't just sit on our tush and expect it to go away. Um, I think another thing that you know just really mm. stood out mm. to me. Um, I think it was Ben from Canada was saying that um, that he, you know people are, can be considered okay if they're not that black, <laughs> mm. um, and, mm. and this idea of you know sort of having to in a sense proselytize people into you know becoming more white for them to become more accepted. Mm. Um, I think as individuals we have the power to to change that. You know that mm. that people don't have to have to become less black to be our friends. Mm. You know to be people that are accepted and loved by us, mm. um, and then we should expand that out to our families, and then to our churches, and then you know further abroad to our political systems, etc. Mm. But it needs to start with us. Um, and so you know how do we do that? I, I think one of the ways we do that is by embracing all cultures. Mm. Um, so you know when you meet somebody who's not like you, instead of pushing back on that and feeling uncomfortable about it, explore it, celebrate Mm. it, you know, Mm. embrace the person that they are. Mm. Don't expect them to come to your level for you to be willing to, you know, accept them as a a friend or as a person that you can Mm. associate with. Mm. And And then another thing, based on some of the stories that Kelly was telling, you know, it it seems like it it should be really important to us that we, you know, don't continue setting um, people of color up for failure. Mm. Um, you know, like our system, like she was pointing out, with all of the statistics, uh, our system is is actually, um, like I think you shared earlier, Matt. Um, it's it's basically keeping them in slavery by mm. by the very nature of the system that we've created. Um, and so, you know, we might not have the, uh, the power to change legislation individually, uh, but we can certainly change the way we do that and then, you know, do the Jesus thing and go into bat for them. You know, there's, no, there's nothing worthwhile on my character card for me to get into heaven, mm. you know, yeah. nothing. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, Jesus said, don't worry about that. Look at mine instead. And I think we should have that level of solidarity for our our friends of color, mm. you know. Well, you know, when I say friends, I just mean brothers and sisters in Christ. That's anyone. Mm. They don't mm-hmm. need to be our friends, but people, you know, who are being mistreated, that we would jump in for them and say, no, you know, that's not right. That's not on, or you know, give them a chance, give them a fair go, um, mm. and if they're not willing to give them a fair go based on the color of their skin. Well, give them a fair go based on the color of my skin. Hmm. You know, take me as your as your what was it called in the Old Testament? Um, your surety. Yeah. You know, the mm-hmm. the one that stands in in there on your behalf and says, you know what, mm-hmm. trust me. If mm-hmm. you can't trust them, trust me. Advocate for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, why can't yeah. we do that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And 
I think you um, really speak to what Matthew 25 says, um, you know, uh, starting in verse 31, but obviously he talks about, um, you know, Christ returning and he's sitting down with, with all people and he speaks to the righteous and he says, you know, you fed me when I was, you know, hungry, you clothed me when I was naked, you came and visited me in prison, you know, you did all these good things and they sit there and they say, well, when I never seen you, um, and he said, but when you did these for the least of your brothers and sisters, you did it for me. You know, as as Christians, we're meant to be followers of Christ. We're meant to emulate who he was and his character. Yep. And like standing up for social injustices and taking care of those who aren't, you know, privileged like us mm. is like at the core of what God is looking for us to yep. l- like, you know, show as an example of us being Christians. Yep. Yeah. Have, have you guys had that experience yourselves on a completely different level to the people that we're speaking to, of course, but have you had that experience where you felt like, you know, down and out or you have actually been in a situation where it didn't look like there was going to be a way out of it and somebody actually stood in for you? I know I've been in that situation, you know, where I, I was spiraling out of control in my life and I had a counsellor who, who did that, you know, he really stood in the gap for me um, you know, advocated on my behalf, I guess you could say, and sort of forged a way back into society for me. And, you know, that's very weak in comparison to what people who have to deal with that at every moment of their lives go through. But it gives me a bit of an insight into how important that is, mm. you know. So this is this is a huge calling that we have as, as people who aren't oppressed, yeah. you know, to take, take up that stand for those who are. And just uh, to, to borrow some language from, from Ty Gibson, I was listening to his most recent sermon from Storyline Church, and he was saying basically, if there is anybody downstream from you in the power dynamic structure, then and they are being oppressed, then it's your responsibility to do, to do something about it. Yep. And to, when you think about it like that, Speaking from our position collectively, you know, it, we think of, you know, who is downstream from us. And I think, you know, if anybody is, you know, if you're in a first world nation, if you're living in Western culture, if you're, you know, a, a, a white guy with good health, there's a lot of people that fit that fit that category, right? And that doesn't put, I'm not exalting us above anybody else, but I mean, there's a lot of people whose lives we could have a, a potential positive impact on who are currently not having a, a great experience in life, and mm. yep. this is this is a great example. This, this whole issue of, of racism, Black Lives Matter, or this, this whole movement is a great example of where we should be applying our energy to um, to liberate those that are downstream from us in the power, structure of power dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see this a lot in Australia. I know they see it a lot in America, you know, but I'm going to talk from my experience of overgeneralizations, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we look at an Aboriginal and whether we like it or not, we see through that overgeneralized fashion what that person is based on what our culture says they will be. Mm. You know, completely regardless of their behavior, anything like that it's before all of that the first point of contact as soon as you see that they're an aboriginal person there's an overgeneralization in your mind mm-hmm. so we need to cut that out of our thinking process yeah. and our speaking process 
we need to get rid of the assumptions that we were talking about at the beginning. You know that yeah. our, our coloured audience, uh, our coloured uh, participants shared with us. You know that people make these assumptions about them. Mm. You know mm. we need we need to we need to get them out of our system somehow. And you know I know this is extremely abstract, and we can't just you know wave the magic wand and all of the assumptions and the overgeneralizations and the segregations and all of these things go away. Mm. Um, but we need to be consciously working them out of our system. And I think mm. one of the ways we can do that is we can go and we can sit with those people who are segregated when we don't have to, you know? Mm. When you go into your lunchroom at work or if you're in a school situation or a uni situation, go and sit with the people that nobody likes, mm. you know? Go and join them in the segregation. Go and find out what it feels like to be in their situation. Go and listen to them, talk with them like we've been saying um, and go and be, be the church. And I think, you know unspoken racism you know this what we're talking about earlier this idea of it being sort of just in the fabric of society we don't even have to do anything for us to be acting in a racist fashion Mm -hmm. um unspoken racism doesn't mean it's not it's it's undone you know it it is done and so we need to undo it somehow uh we need to we need to be actively you know like i I forget who it was that shared the idea of being anti-racist not just you know not racist um yeah, I think that's something we need to consider, you know. And when you think about the way that the early church approached this, uh, you know, when they were um, going about their business and they had to get over this idea of, you know, Jews versus Gentiles mm, and, yeah. and how difficult that was for them, but yet how central that was to their work and their message. That's what it's got to be to us. And now we look at them like... What idiots? You know, we look at them like, how could you not see that it was God's intention for, for them to for, to preach the gospel to them too? Like, it's really clear and obvious to us because it's so far removed from our culture. So, um, I think... You mean you mean in the context of Gentiles? Yeah, yeah. As in, like, the Jews taking the message to the Gentiles. You know, we look at yep. that as being an obvious thing. and We do the same thing, though. That's right. That's exactly right. So, well... Having said that, um, if you guys have anything else to say, feel free to jump in. Um, But I think as we start to wrap this one up, I just want to encourage you to no longer be passive. If If you have been passive, I encourage you to put that on the shelf and spend some time with God. Ask Him how you can how you can make a difference because I know like for me when I think about it I can't but I'm not in a position of authority over a lot of people or whatever so I, I it's very difficult for me to make large scale changes but I, I have a platform right we have a platform that through the podcast we can lend our voice to this to encourage others to continue to make changes I can make changes in my personal life but we, that's something we all can do there's nobody out there that's listening that can't do something it may feel that way but if you give it some thought spend some time with the Lord you will be able to see ways in your own life that you can make a difference for this and I encourage you if you have a platform of your own make it known on that platform where where you stand and what God is showing you through this process and so don't uh, let's no longer be passive let's no longer be bystanders yeah and, and now that you've finished doing your rap we <laughs> might add our rap as well yeah that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, I just think it's really important that we um, as as people of faith recognize that Jesus com- command to us is that we would love our neighbor mm. as we love ourselves mm-hmm. and the only way we're going to be able to do that if, is if we put the golden rule into into practice in our lives mm-hmm. and we treat others as if we were the one that was being treated that way so mm. you know if i was a person of color how would i want to be treated 
and that's the way we need to be acting to our brothers and our sisters mm. you know because that's who they are they're, they're us you know mm. they're just as human as we are human you know they deserve to be treated in exactly the same way that we deserve to be treated because we are all we all belong to God in this exactly the same fashion and so mm. you know that's that's the simple command the the reality though is that it's not so simple to practice right yeah you know the devil mm. is trying to get us to believe that it's absolutely impossible to keep God's law and Jesus said that is God's law mm. to love your brother as yourself mm. so uh you know don't expect it to be easy mm. but that's our mission yeah mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I guess a lot of our our direction has been talking to uh, you know people that are uh, that are white that do have these privileges, but also just want to say in, in closing for our the our brothers and sisters of color from wherever you may be from, we, we just want to say that we we love you. We are we are here and we we see you, but we may not understand experientially, but we are definitely. Uh, expressing solidarity with you and uh, we seek to understand you better and we want to know your stories so um, we encourage you to keep interacting with us and uh, if you have any ideas or any issues that you think need to come to light that you want to talk talk to us about that we might be able to uh, speak on in the future let us know and um, ultimately we uh, will be praying for you guys yeah and we also apologize if we've said anything insensitive because, yes. you know, we're completely ignorant. So, mm-hmm. you know, just forgive us and just trust that we had your best interests at heart. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, God bless you guys. We will see you next week. And thank you for writing out this very long episode with us. God bless. And that's the end of another episode. Just before I head off, I want to encourage you to go over to our page on Facebook and also our account on Instagram and follow us there because that is where we interact with our listeners and we would love for you to enter in and join the conversation. Also, while you're signing up, I would also recommend signing up to our mailing list on our website, oztabletalk.com.au. If you do that, you will receive our exclusive content because occasionally we do release exclusives and they only go out to our mail mailing list so I would strongly recommend you go and sign up for that if you have a few more minutes to be one of the most amazing listeners on the planet you can go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review because reviews help us to grow and they help other people to find us so if you want to help us reach those goals please jump in and give us a review the final message that I'd like to leave you with is to let you know about our Patreon account now Patreon is a way for creators to get paid for creating and ultimately what we do does cost money to get us hosted and have the services that we need to run the podcast and so if you'd like to help us do that jump over onto patreon.com slash oztabletalk and you can you can give anything from even a dollar a month upwards but at different levels there are different benefits different rewards that we want to give you just to say thank you for being an amazing supporter of ours if you can't afford that we would just gratefully accept your prayers because that is what our ministry runs on. And so with that, I will leave you to your day and thank you so much for listening to this episode. We look forward to seeing you guys next week.